Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have a special guest in Mr. Alex Ramirez of Lucky Communities. Before we dive in, I want to ask you a real quick favor. Would you mind taking an extra 30 seconds and head over to iTunes to rate this podcast with five stars? This helps us get more listeners, and it means the absolute world to me. So thanks for making my my day with that five-star review of the show. All right, let's dive in. Alex is the co-founder and CEO of Lucky Communities. Alex and his partner, Zach Kupperman, bring a combined 25 years of experience in operations and development in the housing industry. Both founders were born and raised in New Orleans and continue to reside in the Big Easy with their families. When Alex's mom immigrated from Columbia in the early 1980s, her first home was in a mobile home park, making this yet another reason why Alex is so passionate about the space. Alex, we are excited to welcome you to the show. Happy to be here, Andrew. Thank you for having me. I've listened to your show for quite some time now since the beginning. And so it's, it's an honor to be here with you, man. Yeah, yeah. It was great meeting you at uh, the MHI Congress and Expo uh, in Orlando here back in April. So I'm glad we were able to connect. And uh, I think this will be, be an awesome interview so our listeners can learn more about you and uh, Lucky Communities. Absolutely. Um, you know, I've been I've been in the business for well, in real estate, I should say, real estate investing on my on my own or with partners for the past ten or twelve years. But I think, relatively speaking, I'm a newbie to the mobile home park space. You know, we, we founded our company in 2021, and so MHI, where we met, was the uh, was was my first experience at 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 that uh, particular conference. So it, it was great. It was great to meet people from you know all over the country, um, particularly from the industry and no doubt it's 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 true what they say about folks in the industry itself that um everyone's friendly and willing to uh lend a hand so it was a great experience yeah that's awesome um alex maybe you can start out by telling us your story uh, how you got into manufactured housing and how you came up with the name lucky communities absolutely well i've i've always known that i wanted to be in in real estate Growing up, I was always around it. You know, my parents were, were able to put together uh, a small portfolio of townhomes. And so they were the type of folks that kind of put their sweat, blood, and tears into it. Uh, they did it the old school way without any leveraging, saved up their money and did all the work themselves. And, you know, I knew that I that there was a better way of doing it. And my parents pushed me to finding that better way. But yeah, so just kind of taking a step back from that, I was, uh, I, I'm, as you said, born and raised in, in New Orleans, Louisiana. If you guys have never been here, come on down. It's it's a great it's a great place. Um, the hospitality is second to none. But I, I left for school, went to Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. You know, spent my four years there. After that, lived in D.C. working for Equity Residential, actually as a leasing consultant. You know, after after doing that for maybe three or four years, um, moved back to New Orleans. This is now 2009. And I wanted to be part of the revitalization efforts after Katrina, especially knowing that it's my home city, and as well that that I wanted to be part of the the real estate revitalization 
prior to Katrina, New Orleans was always known as a as a brain drain, if you will. I mean, no one ever came back. I never expected to come back. But, you know, after Katrina, a lot of young people saw sort of the opportunity to come and, and make a difference. And I wanted to be a, a part of that. So moved back home, started working for the New Orleans Redevelopment Authority. We were tasked with essentially putting those properties, uh, those, those, those privately owned properties. There's a program called Road, Road Home. And it was a, a statewide program where uh, the state bought back uh, those homes from, you know, private citizens who weren't interested in in coming back into uh, the the state or, in our case, the the city of New Orleans. So instead of just letting those homes, those dilapidated properties, just sit there privately owned, the state bought them back. You know, we were then tasked in terms of working with the different neighborhoods to um, come up with a disposition plan. So did that for about a year, but. I've never been someone to really do well in sort of the, the large kind of corporate environment. Um, I've always known that I wanted to go off on my own. So in about 20, I think this is now 20, end of 2010, start of 2011, I moved into ground zero into one of these neighborhoods that uh, had pretty much all abandoned properties. And I did the opposite of what any smart investor should do is I moved into the nicest home in pretty much ground zero where uh, there was just, you know, I, I was surrounded by vacant properties. This was before I had my wife, before I had kids, it was just me. I was like, you know what, I'm just going to get in there and, 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 and see what, see what happens. As, as anyone knows, it's kind of hard to get into uh, real estate as a, as a young entrepreneur with very little income. So, you know, took $5 with an FHA loan, bought my first property, then started calling up folks who uh, owned the properties next door who were abandoned. That kind of led into a, a a a business there where I founded CSM Realty, and I was able to buy abandoned properties. This is again 2009, 2010 after Katrina, after the bubble, you know things were just sitting there, right? So at that time, I picked them up for 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 little to nothing. And once I started renting those properties, I started kind of looking into the short-term rental industry as well. Again, this is before it, it, it was saturated with the, the sort of listings and uh, popularity that we see now. So it did really well, especially in New Orleans, where it's such a, you know, it's, an, it's, a, it's a city that takes in a, a high amount of tourism. Um, the demand was there. That got me into the hotel business, started developing uh, boutique hotels in that same area of New Orleans, which is mid-city. Met some great business partners along the way. And then fast forward to 2019, all of a sudden, you know, we have three boutique hotels. I'm finding myself in a position where I'm spending the majority of my time managing hotels, which was never the plan. It just kind of happened. One of those investors, one of those uh, investors that we had in, with, in the hotel brought me a mobile home park deal and I knew nothing about it. And I looked at the numbers and that was it. You know, I, I never looked back at that point. So that's 2019. In terms of new business, that's what I focused on. 2020, the pandemic hit. Now we're playing defense with the hospitality portfolio. No one knows what's going on. You know, Andrew, you, you remember those times. You know, it's, it, it feels like a long time ago, but it was what, maybe two years ago? And yeah. we literally had no answers. It, literally, the, the, the world stopped turning, right? And so... We play defense. Thankfully, the PPP programs 
saved us without it, you know, we a lot of businesses wouldn't be here today. Frankly, it's 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 hard to imagine how the economy would look like without those programs. So 2021 came along and we, we sort of we sort of started ramping up again with with the mobile home park ambition. Um, and that is what we found at Lucky Community. So that is the long answer to the history of where I come from. The name Lucky, you asked, that is we, we know we wanted to we know we wanted to have a, a different name. You know, there, there's there's a lot of great companies out there, but you know, there's a lot of you know, Eagle Rocks or, you know, Blackstone or, you know, you have a very specific name to your name as, to uh, to your company as well. But the reason it made sense for us is because for us, lucky is a, you know, the, to be lucky, the act of getting lucky is it's a mindset, right? The, 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 the harder you work, the more focused you are, the luckier you get. You know, any, any books that you read about these, these successful entrepreneurs, you'll find that they got lucky after they put in the work. So, um, for those two reasons, we decided to to stick to the name and Lucky Communities was born in, in 2021. I love that. That is awesome. I love the uh, the origination of the name there. That's super cool. Um, tell us more about the hospitality business. Like, did that, do you still own those boutique hotels to this day? You know, how are they operating now versus when you when you started them? I can only imagine, you know, being you know, March, April, 2020 and owning, you know, three boutique hotels. It was, it was wild. I mean, the biggest fear was that because we were boutique and small, you know, we were, we, we thought we'd be left out of the, the recovery uh, protocol because, you know, frankly, we understand that the first guys to be saved are the ones that are too big to fail. So, you know, we, we didn't know what was going to, you know, what was going to happen. Um, but you know, we we I have as a team, um, I have some 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 incredible partners. Um, one who is my partner here at Lucky Communities, who's a lawyer by trade and just knows how to dig into the these programs and you know get there and be proactive and, and understand what we need to do. Um, but it was a it was it was a it was a scary time. It, it, it certainly was. You know, like it. I don't think we've ever seen anything like it. I don't know if we will. Where money just stops flowing, right? Money at, at all levels, money just stopped. So it was, it was an incredible time. Um, you know, forward to the, fast forward to this day, we, we did sell one of those hotels. Thankfully, it, it did well. The reason it did well was because of the location of this particular hotel. It was, it was very well centrally located. And if you understand hotel investors and developers, you know, there, there's a lot of pride that goes into ownership of these properties. So they're willing to pay a premium. It's hard to forecast, you know, the exit of a hotel because it's, you know, it's, there are certain investors who will pay a premium to be in the business. But thankfully, we did okay. We have the, the other two that we still manage and operate. Those are doing well. I mean, as, as we know, the economy is, is still very strong. And once we were able to survive the pandemic, you know, people were people were itching to get out, especially to a to a city like New Orleans, where we're all about that um, social aspect. You know, having a good time, letting loose, all that. So, you know, still still got those. But in terms of new business, it's um, it's all it's all mobile home parks from uh, moving forward. At least at least for me. Yeah. Wow. I'm I'm just thinking. So, you know, did your reservations just 
you know, stopped completely. There was, there was zero income. And I assume you have loans on these boutique hotels, you know, where you were talking to lenders, you know, trying to, you know, get, you know, delays on your mortgage payments and all that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm just thinking I would be in panic mode. It, it was just like you said, I mean, you were on a bunch of different um, channels, right? We were on Airbnb, you know, we are on uh, booking.com, you know, we, we we have a whole network of systems that handle the the revenue management. But seeing, I just remember seeing those those emails come in with cancellation after cancellation after cancellation after. I mean, it was it was incredible. It was, it, I mean, it was it, it literally flooded the the inbox, right? But thankfully, we were all in it together, right? So, or you know, we have very good relationships with our lenders. So they did defer payments for uh, quite a uh, bit of time. I think it, I think we probably did it for up to a year, as a matter of fact. Um, and that's why you know having those relationships is, is very important. And again, the PPP programs um, that that helped a lot as well. That brought in uh, quite a bit of cash that we needed to just kind of um, you know stick it out. So it, it was. I mean, look, we were we were we were playing defense for a while, right? Like, if had it not been for the pandemic. You know, we'd be a year into or further into where we are now with with Lucky. But look, at the end of the day, when when if you have the 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 will to survive, you know, you it, it's not going to come to you. There's no handouts, right? You have to go and to look for them. You gotta you gotta understand that you have to be creative, and that's kind of how we how we handle it. But certainly, it was it was a scary time. I already wanted to pivot towards mobile home parks before the pandemic. And then once the pandemic hit, that just kind of cemented it. Right. I mean, from, from a, a risk level in terms of the asset class and investing to just the, the level of headaches and management that hotels, that it's just not, that's just sort of the nature of the beast in, in hotels. I mean, the amount of overhead (laughs) to, to hit that, you know, to just get a piece of profit, the amount of work to do that is, is unbelievable, right? I mean, it's 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 a lot of work. Oh yeah, I can I can only imagine. The reason I'm kind of di- digging into the the hospitality side of things is because I think you as an operator, if I you know put my 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 LP hat on, you know, I, I think uh, you've been through a crisis, right? Like a like on the front lines, and you've come out relatively unscathed. You know, I'm not sure. I'm sure you and your partners had to you know ante up cash, right? Uh, until the PPP funds came through. And I think that says a lot about you, right? Because you, you made it through, you know, and, and your, your credit's intact because I know you're doing other deals. So I think that says a lot about you as, a, as an operator. Thanks. And I, and I appreciate that. And yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of sort of thinking back. I mean, you know, it's interesting to have these conversations because, you know, on a day-to-day basis, you're just go, go, go. And you have very little time to reflect but you know to your point kind of looking back at how we were able to to handle that I mean it, it truly took a, a team effort and you know it was a moment where where everyone sort of came together from you know the lenders to the even the vendors to you know the, the government pitched in I mean it, it was a moment where we all kind of kind of came together and said look you know let's let's figure this out how, how are we going to be able to to survive right what would you do what would you do differently Alex? Is there anything you'd looking back that you you maybe learned from and and would uh, would change? And are, are these like you know how many rooms are these boutique hotels? 
Yeah, these are, I mean, these are about 20 rooms, right? And we have, we have an F&B component to it as well. I mean, I'll tell you one of the things that, that we did well in terms of adapting, because you have to adapt in these situations. One particular hotel is the, the Drifter Hotel in, in, in New Orleans, in mid-city New Orleans. And we have about 20 rooms there, and we have an incredible F&B system there. In fact, you know, I would say about 70% of our income for that particular asset comes from the F&B side because we've been able to create an environment and experience for our guests. There's a lot of locals that come to the uh, hotel to take a dip in a pool, to have a drink. It's, you know, it's, we did well making it a very well-designed uh, hotel where you, you, once you go in, you, you kind of forget where you are and, and you enjoy the, the experience. But all that to say is that you know, once we were able to open back up, we, we pivoted from just a, a system where we let everyone and anybody in with an admission cover, right, to a reservation system, right? And so by doing so, we were able to limit the number of guests that came in. And if, if, you, if you look up the Drifter Hotel, you'll, you'll, you'll see it can be quite a bit of a, of a party scene, right? But we pivoted from that since the density had to be less to more of a uh, high quality, you know, high, we, we essentially elevated the, the drinks that we we're offering. You know, we spent more time on the, the quality of beverages that we we're making. We increased the prices on those. We we're able to better manage the, the, the density and therefore, you know, bring down the amount of people that were, that the amount of staff that, that had to be there at a given time, therefore reducing the, the labor costs. And then instead of folks paying, you know, $15 to be there the entire day, people were paying 15 bucks for a two hour reservation. And mm. if you remember at that time, you know, when, when, when someone takes something away from you, like an experience, when someone tells you can no longer get together and socialize or go to a pool in, in a social aspect, it becomes very valuable. So when we were able to do that in a safe way in terms of kind of respecting the COVID rules, it became a place that everyone was was wanting to come in. So our income actually improved. Our bottom line improved because of that pivot there. So that was that was an interesting thing. That was a very good learning experience, and it's actually something that we've kept throughout because it's just easier to manage from an operating perspective. Wow! Yeah, that's that's super cool. Yeah, I don't I don't know that much about you know the hospitality industry, but I can <laughs> I can see you know when you know when we talk to sellers. And we always try to create that fear of missing out, right? That sense of urgency. And uh, it definitely, you know, creates action. So that's, that's what we try to implement in our cold callers. But let's, let's flip over to mobile home parks now. Tell sure. us about Lucky Communities. You know, when did you guys buy your first mobile home park? How many are you up to today? Uh, and what, what type of parks are you guys buying? So we... Uh... Formed in, in, in 2021, so we're, we're still a relatively young company with, you know, very ambitious goals. You know, we have our, you know, what, what do they call them again? The, the hairy, audacious goals, right? Currently, we're at 250 lots here in Louisiana and Alabama. Uh, that's a total of about five parks, so on average, about 50 units per park. You know, the southeast is our, our main market, and even within that market, our submarket currently is... Alabama and, and Louisiana, you know, being from New Orleans, it just makes it easier to, to manage as well. 
But yeah, I mean, in five years, right? I mean, it's, you know, we, we say this number and, and, and a lot of times folks are, you know, they, they, they find it hard to believe without a doubt, but, you know, we, we want to be at, at 10,000 lots in five years, right? And that's, that is proving to be very difficult to achieve, especially the, with the current expectations of, of sellers out there of what, the, what these properties are worth, right? So um, it, it, it's a challenge, but we're going to see how close we can get. Yeah, I mean, just in a year, you know, getting up to, to that many lots is quite an accomplishment. So I assume you kind of just left everything hospitality behind and said, hey, I'm all in on this asset class. Yeah, 100%. So I, I have an operations manager um, that handles the hospitality assets that we still have, the two, the, the, the two hotels, as well as the, um, the long-term you know, single family rentals that we have the short-term rentals that we have. So we have quite a, we still have a decent portfolio there. Was able to, to hire a good operations manager. They handle all that, but we're not focused on, on the growth on that side, right? Um, I think the hardest thing of any business is trying to manage it and grow it, right? Managing isn't, isn't hard if you're happy with the status quo, right? You come into the office, you, 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 know, you open up your emails and you, if you have a good team, you, know, you, you, just, you, you know what to do. You have a good process, you know what to do. The hard part is balancing that with the growth side, right? Because you know, going out there and finding new deals and um, getting them under contract and a negotiation and it, it, it all adds up. So that is, that is certainly the challenge. Oh, I, I totally agree. And then I remember when we were just starting out, it was you know, the management income wasn't covering enough for the the team we needed right so i was using the cash flow from my first few deals to fund the management company uh which could be difficult but uh maybe you could tell us a little bit about that how have you guys that is, uh you know set up operations and and what does your property management team look like yeah and that i mean that's that's very much the case for us right we are probably overstaffed right now with the understanding that we're trying to grow um, ambitiously. Um, and I've, you know, I've done this a few times now in other asset classes where I'm literally just chasing my tail all day long and it's, it's hard to do that. So, you know, we're trying to set up ourselves for success. Um, you know, we, in, in terms of what, what, what we stand for or what we believe the, you know, what we believe the way that we get to our, to our ultimate goals is by, following our three P's, right? And that is being process oriented, right? And that is being people oriented and then also being tech oriented, right? So we try to leverage technology or the three O's, I'm sorry. We try to leverage technology as much as possible, right? I mean, I think this is an industry that's a bit antiquated and there's plenty of room to improve those operations with technology, with Zoom such as this, with Slack, you know, with the rent manager and collecting uh, rents digitally, there's no reason to not leverage technology. So that's something that we we try to utilize to our full extent, right? And then we also have, you know, being people oriented. I think that's incredibly important, right? This is a people business, right? So whether you're dealing with sellers on the acquisition side or whether you're dealing with tenants, um, you have to know how to deal with people. As long as you you treat people with respect. Um, you're always going to have a positive outcome. I think you've probably seen this, Andrew, where, you know, our tenants have a lot of complaints and, you know, there are certain things we can't do about it to, to help them. But I've learned that if, if you're willing to 
to lend an ear or build a team that can lend an ear that that's all they really want is someone is, is to be heard and a lot of people a lot of tenants in our industry are not heard they're they're ignored have been ignored for society so that that's been one piece of the key for for our success and then just the process you know this isn't rocket science right if you create the right processes if you document them and you repeat it over and over you're only going to get better so you know we try to leverage those three things and we do so by trying to hire the right people and having them work internally. So, you know, we, we take away as much as possible from what we call the resident concierge on the, on the ground level and have and, and focus on the team in-house that we have at, at, you know, at our headquarters to be able to handle the bulk of the administrative stuff, right? Those are folks that we really focus on, on training to a high degree. And how many people are that is, is in that team? Yeah, right now we have about 12. We have about 12 full-time employees. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. That's, yeah. uh, that's, that's probably a lot for 500 months. So, <laughs> it uh, is, it is, it is, but you know, we're closing on another 50 lots here in New Orleans in uh, this, the, the month of July. So um, July, 2020. And, you know, we have another 600 lots that we're looking to finalize negotiations with right now. So we know it's coming. It's, you know, we just want to make sure we have the, the, the right pieces in place so that when it does come, we're, we're ready. Yeah. Kudos for that. What would you say is the hardest value add component that you've come across thus far in mobile home parks? The hardest value add, you know, it, it, it's probably the, from what I hear, cause I haven't done it yet is the, the infilling process. And I haven't done it because I, right now, just with the way that the, you know, that the supply chain, uh, the, the problem with the supply chain, it's, it's, I'm, I'm shying away from the type of deals that need a high level of infilling right now, A, because we frankly lack the experience and we understand that, it, that it's taken a long time to, to get homes and the homes themselves are, are expensive at this point. And it compared to how they were about a year or two ago, I don't know if the, the price of these homes will, will come down, but you know, I, from, from listening to your show and from other people, it's, it, it sounds like currently the, the manufacturers have quite a bit of leverage. And so they can pick and choose who, who they work with. And they, they're probably working with those folks that, uh, or they're prioritizing those folks who they have history and experience with right now. Yeah. So what are, what are some of the value add, you know, in your current acquisitions? Like, are, is there vacant, is there vacant homes? Is there like, you know, billing backwater sewer? What, what type of value add have you done? Sure. I think the, so we've been fortunate enough to find off-market deals where there is a high level of tenant-owned homes. The biggest issue has been that they've been poorly run. You know, we're, we're in situations where, um, frankly, just the, the culture of the park needs to be changed, right? They pay cash whenever they want. Mom and pop don't care. They don't have a loan to, to, to service on a monthly basis. You know, they, they keep terrible books. And so, you know, when we took over these parks, that's kind of what the what the resident, what the tenant is used to. And so the biggest challenge is coming in there and just educating the, the tenant, quite frankly, in the lucky way, in the way that, that we operate. And no one likes change, right? Every time you, you buy a, a park, everyone is sort of suspicious of what you're going to do. So our top priority is to go in and make folks feel comfortable and have them understand that we're here to help them, even though there is going to be change, right? So part of that culture change is also coming in and enforcing the rules and having folks fix up their homes. 
right? If you come into some of these parts when we initially purchased them, they were missing skirting, you know, they were not painted, you had broken windows. And so part of what we do is come in and enforce those rules. And, you know, I went to Frank's boot camp. It was, it was a great experience for, for me. And I, I completely agree that even if you allow your resident to borrow money or even grant the money to get some of these small projects done, you know, it'll, it'll go a long way. So, you know, we call that the, uh, the HIP program, right? The home improvement program where we come in and if, if, if you need paint or if you need $500 to get something done, or if you need the labor, we, we will supply you with whatever it is you need, because at the end of the day, it's a team effort and the, it'll, it'll all pay itself back in the, in the curb appeal of the, of the, of the asset. Totally agree with you. Yeah, no, that's a great program. Where do you feel is the best opportunity or, or strategy in the uh, mobile home park investing right now? Good question. Strategy, you know, it's, it's, I think right now it's being patient. You know, don't do a deal for the sake of doing a deal. You know, you could lose a lot of money that way. You know, there, there's like, like everything in life, there's, there's a balance, right? If you, if you overanalyze, you're going to get caught with, you know, uh, paralysis of analysis, right? You're never going to get anywhere. But if you jump in too quickly without uh, dotting your I's and crossing your T's, then, you know, you, you, you can end up with a deal that in the long term won't work out. And that's the worst of all situations because you're going to lose money and you're going to lose time, right? That said, you know, what we're seeing is that obviously there, there's a lot of private equity and institutional money now into this space, right? The, I thought I was a genius when I saw this first deal in 2019 and I got into the space only to discover that the cat was out the bag, right? And so that's, mm-hmm. that's becoming more and more the case as we, as we progress. But for us, with a strategy where we essentially centralize all of the operations, you know, going after smaller parks that are not desirable for you know, the, the, the PEs and the institutional money has been a good opportunity for us, you know, even coming down to the 30 to 50 unit parks, because we're, we're able to essentially create a portfolio of these smaller parks and operate them at scale through our internal and centralized operations and by also leveraging that technology, right? And so the way I look at it is that if we wanted to exit, and by the way, we're longtime holders, you know, at, you know, with, if it was up to me, you know, we'd hold on to these to these properties for for life. You know, I'm in it for the cash flow, not necessarily for the exit. But at the end of the day, you gotta you gotta perform right out, and you gotta make sure it all makes sense, right? So, if we were to exit, I think it would make sense to sell the entire business with the operations because it's already intact to manage these smaller properties um, throughout the southeast. So that is a strategy that so far is looking for us. It's working for us. That's what we're finding more opportunity, but we're always ready and willing to strike once a, once a bigger deal comes along. We're just trying to be patient as well as just kind of picking the low-hanging fruit that, that's out there. Sure. So 30 to 50 lot parks, what are you, what are you looking at utility-wise? Are, are you buying private utilities? Does, you know, is there a specific uh, setup that you look for? Yeah, I mean, look, in a, in a, in a perfect world, you have all public utilities, right? But particularly here in Louisiana, 
I'll tell you, the uh, the parks with oxidation ponds are very popular, and by popular, I mean they're just they're they're just everywhere, <laughs> right? And so for a long time, I tried to stay away from those because of what Frank preaches, and you know, clearly they're just not desirable. But in Louisiana, it's it's something that is manageable. So while we try to steer away from those parks that have private utilities, it's definitely not a not a deal killer, and we're learning. The system and the processes we're creating those relationships with DEQ and DHS so that we stay compliant with everything. Yeah, in a in a perfect world, you know, we we have water that's directly billed by the city, right? When mm-hmm. I find one some of those deals, and you know, I'll, I'll pay a little extra for those if you don't have to deal with with the water at all. If it goes sure. you know, directly to from the tenant to the city, from a billing perspective as well. That that I love that. Oh, definitely. Uh, what mistakes have you made in mobile home park investing thus far that uh, maybe some of our other operators that are listening could learn from? I think hindsight is is twenty twenty, right? But you know, back in 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 twenty twenty or the, the the late part of twenty twenty, there were a few deals that we were we were looking at that we passed on. Um, again, it was a hard time to kind of make moves, right? We're still playing defense. Um, but there were certainly some deals that even then were, were ripe for the taking, right? Um, I've approached those sellers again, and they've sold the, 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 the properties already for, you know, up to 50% more than what I could have secured them for just two years ago, right? Mm. So it's, it's wild. But at the same time, you know, again, hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, you know, Frank is incredible. I, I, like I said, I, I did the boot camp. I, I've learned an incredible amount from him, but I would say that, you know, the cap rates and valuation tactics that, that he talks about, um, may be just, um, a a little bit antiquated because you, you just can't find those type of deals anymore. Um, so I, I've started, you know, just like any deal in any other asset class, you know, you, you have to perform out, um, uh, uh, the, the project, right. And, if you want to get into the game today, you have to pay for a little bit of the upside, right? It, it, that's that's really what what we're finding is that you're not going to find these deals that are trading for a eight percent cap rate on the current income. At least that's not what what we have found. Um, Andrew, maybe may, may, maybe you've had better luck. I don't know. Where? Uh, how do you find your deals, Alex? Mostly, um, so we have an acquisition team as well, and so you know we have um, a acquisition specialist whose whose sole job is to cold call. So nice. um, her job is to simply make contact right um, with that person and try to make an appointment. But once we have confirmed that that contact information, it is then my job to go and reach out to that person, create a rapport. You know, if they're not ready to sell today. And hopefully they they will be a year or two years from now, but it's 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 crazy because you know um, I'll follow up every three months, and what I found this past month is a, a, a quite a bit of those leads are already under contract for an absurd amount of of money, right? Um, and it, it's a hard pill to swallow, you know, when 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 you've been in touch with these folks. And then you call them, they're like, oh yeah. But then, you know, some will disclose the number, some will not. 
those that do disclose the number, you know, it makes you feel better because I just don't know how you you cash flow off of those numbers, right? I mean, again, sure. we when we when we evaluate our our deals, we're, we're looking at cash flow more than more than anything else. Sure. Uh, what are the most important things passive investors? You know, we're talking limited partners here. What do you think they need to look out for when investing into mobile home parks? That's a good question. I think understanding the assumptions on a pro forma, even from a very high level. I'm not saying you need to be an expert, you know, you're an LP, but you should know the basics, right? So if the projected return on your money is heavily weighted on the exit versus the cash flow, then it may not be realistic because we all know we can, you know, there, there's a lot of very savvy GPs out there who know how to manipulate the numbers and make a return look good. You know, performa is as only as good as how realistic it is. So I would I would advise them to take a close look at how those numbers are being derived, right? It, you know, what is your cash on cash that you can expect on an annual basis versus, you know, a, a an a an exit, you know, two years down the line, right? Is it realistic? You know, what is the appreciation in that price from now to so two years on the line. Now, just like I said, you know, some of these deals are going for, you know, 50% more two years later, you know, in terms of what 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 I have found. But that, you know, that's it's it's just a risky move, right? Um, aside from that, I would say, you know, make sure that they that the communication is there, make sure that they're willing to answer your questions, that they're willing to spend the time with you. And at the end of the day, it's it's all about the trust factor, right? Do you trust this individual, right? Because it's hard of it's hard to understand the numbers if you're not an expert in finance, right? Um, but if they have a proven track record and if you trust this individual, then at the end of the day, you know, it the numbers are what they are. If they've delivered to you in the past or if they've delivered to, you know, your colleagues, then most likely it's it's gonna be a, a good operator. What does the perfect mobile home park look like in your eyes and why? Perfect mobile home park, man. Those, I mean, those, I mean, <laughs> do those even exist? I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I would say uh, all tenant owned homes, you know, that would be, that, that'd be fantastic. I think I mentioned direct water bill with the town or the city where you don't have to worry about the water at all. You know, it's, it's not on you in terms of um, having to build back or debate those bills with your residents. And, the third would be maybe, you know, if they're not eligible for Fannie Freddie or some sort of agency debts at the acquisition, then do they have the potential to get there for the reposition, especially as interest rates continue to climb? You know, if you have a park that you can safely secure with Fannie Freddie, who will undoubtedly provide lower interest rates, you know, I think that would be that would be the perfect park. And maybe let's talk about that a little bit, right? Like, I think the economy is changing. Uh, obviously, inflation is is still you know pretty high right now. The stock market's not doing so well. What do you think the future of mobile home park investing looks like? And how are you guys maybe what steps are you guys taking now to uh, hedge against maybe a, a rocky next couple of years? Yeah, good good question. I mean, I guess that's one of the reasons I I like the the, the mobile home park space. Um, I think there's 
there's a lot of potential there. Um, why? I mean, I think I think simply put, this is supply and demand, right? I mean, we can sit here and analyze the economy in in many different angles, but you know, just like Sam Zell so famously continues to state, it's it's all about supply and demand, right? And so we know that demand for affordable housing, you know, isn't going anywhere, isn't going anytime soon. It's it's only been exasperated by inflation, right? Uh, meanwhile, prices of real estate, including mobile home parks, continue to go up. Um, I'm not sure if you saw the, the the Bloomberg article regarding, you know, Biden's administration's desire to fire up the, the housing factories. I mean, that was that was very interesting to see. So if we could work on a supply side like like the administration wants to, and frankly a lot of people want, you know, there there's there's a lot of room for growth. Um, you know, if 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 we could find a way to, you know, have Fannie and Freddie buy these these uh, mortgages from the the homes that that our residents are trying to buy, that would very clearly lower the interest rates and not treat them like the you know chattel loans and the type of interest rates we're getting there, right? If we're able to somehow incentivize local governments to allow manufactured homes, you know, from a federal level, that would certainly help, right? Um, we need to just continue to ease restrictions. So I think we'll get there in, in terms of a, an industry. I think it'll take some time. But in the meantime, the demand, the demand is there. And so we just got to work to on the supply side to reach that equilibrium because we're far from it. Um, but if, if you're patient and if you're willing to find the right deals, then I think you know investing in mobile home parks in itself is a way of um, you know, kind of hedging against inflation, right? Investing in real estate in general. Very cool. Um, Alex, if any of our listeners would like to get a hold of you, what is the best way for them to do so? Well, they could, uh, they could reach me at alex at luckycommunities.com. You can also look us up on our website, www.luckycommunities.com. I'm happy to talk to anyone in the industry. Um, obviously, I can go on and on about about this kind of stuff. So um, feel free to reach out to me anytime. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Andrew, for having me. This has been a pleasure, man. And keep doing what you're doing. I love it. Appreciate it. That's it for today, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. Would you like to see mobile home park value add projects in progress? If so, follow us on Instagram at Passive MHP Investing for photos and awesome videos from our recent mobile home park acquisitions. Once again, that's at Passive MHP Investing on Instagram. See you there.